so grateful for these guys and um, for how they help us. Take your Bibles and turn to John 14. This morning we want to read verses 15 through 24 of John 14, John's Gospel, chapter 14. And we're going to pick up at verse 15 and read down through verse 24. These are God's words for us this morning, that God in His mercy uh, would speak to us and give us this word. And here's what God says. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in, the, in my Father, and, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them. It is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home in him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. There's, There's no word like your word, Father. Your word is forever true. We're thankful for the Spirit of God who moved upon John to pen these words. We're thankful for the Spirit of God who's preserved these words. And we're thankful for the Spirit of God who now will help us to get a hold of these words. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapters 13 through 17 contains the conversation that Jesus had on the eve of his arrest and crucifixion and death. It's, it's a conversation now at this point uh, that Judas Iscariot has departed. He's out doing his work of hatching the betrayal of Jesus. But Jesus is here with uh, his remaining closest followers and having a very intimate, important, and personal conversation with his followers. Now, I point that out, I point out the obvious in the sense, is because as we begin looking at the verses that we've just read, I want to remind you that these verses are not describing how a person becomes a Christian. He, he is talking to his closest followers here, and he's 
unpacking for them some important um, themes that they need to grasp and understand as his followers. And so this, is, this passage is not a description how to, on how to become a Christian. We'll get there before we're done, Lord willing, this morning. But this passage is really how one is a Christian. Uh, how to be a Christian. And along that note then, uh, as, as we quickly look at what's going on and what we've just read, um, I, I believe two, if you would, tracks stand out in this passage that develop two themes. And what I want us to do this morning is look at those two tracks or two themes they're, they're listed there as an insert in your bulletin, if that's helpful for you to keep track of things that way. First of all, I want us to see something as we make our way through these verses of the reality of God's indwelling presence. And then the second theme, the second track that runs throughout this passage is the response to God's indwelling presence. So in other words... This is not how to become a Christian, but how to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who has the indwelling presence of God. And and a Christian is someone who, because they have the indwelling presence of God, is ever responding to and reacting to that reality in their soul and in their hearts and in their lives. So let's jump in and begin this. I I need to do this in less than 30 minutes, and yet I, 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 I I could... I could do that. I would, I would love to take three hours to do this, but I don't have three hours. Um, and uh, so uh, maybe some other time, some other place. Look at verse 16. That's where I want us to begin uh, this emphasis, the first track. The first track is the reality of God's indwelling presence. Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth. Even meaning like, and who I'm talking about is the spirit of truth. So stop right there. We see something very crucial to the Christian faith. We see uh, the name, uh, identification of three distinct persons. The Father and the Son. It's the Son asking the Father. And then then the Son is going to ask the Father for another. The Spirit. And, uh, And so these three distinct persons comprise the one true God. The one true God is a community of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And and what Jesus is emphasizing as he begins this conversation is he's going to ask his Father, as the Son, to give another helper, is what my translation says, Another helper, not, not another of a, of, a, of a different kind, but, but literally another of the same kind. In other words, he's the same kind of being that the Son is, that the Father is. So a, 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 another of the same kind, same kind as Jesus. And, and so in a sense, while Jesus is going to be physically departing shortly, um, he, is, he is going to 
dispatch the Son, I mean the Spirit, he's going to ask the Father to send the Spirit uh, to, to, do, to do some of the very same things that Jesus has been doing. Now the word helper is a very broad word. In fact, literally it just means one who comes alongside another. Jesus had come alongside his disciples during these years. And now he's saying this other one who's a lot like me, uh, who's of the same kind as me, he's another kind of helper. And another one who is going to come alongside. And yet, and yet uh, it, depending upon the context that that word is used, it, it connotes lots of uh, partic- come alongside and do what? Uh, well, to provide encouragement, to provide comfort, to provide exhortation to provide advice, to provide counsel. These are all particulars as to what this helper, the one who comes alongside, does while he's coming alongside uh, uh, us. And and the name given explicitly to this other helper is the spirit of truth. Now, this is going to be used, this term is used three times in, 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 in in this unit, 13 through 17. It's used here in verse... 17, it's used in chapter 15, verse 26, it's used in chapter 16, verse 13. Uh, what does he mean by the, the, the spirit of truth? Well, certainly, since the spirit is the spirit of God, he's the spirit who consists of truth. But here in this context, I think what he's suggesting is he's the spirit who communicates truth. Uh, he is this this. Uh, other helper that Jesus is going to send is going to come and his significance is going to be he's going to further unpack the things that Jesus has begun to teach and do. In, in fact, if you, if you were to make your way through a reading of John's gospel, you will notice that Jesus says a lot of things that people are like, huh? And, and John will even say, now, they didn't understand what he said when he said this, but it'll be later explained to them. So, so, and we see the piece of the puzzle as to how it will be later explained to them. Another helper is coming, that, and, and it, is, it is a prime task of the Spirit of God uh, to, he, he says there, um, he, he dwells with you and he will be in you. It is the prime directive of the Spirit of God who, who now will indwell Jesus' followers to unpack and unravel the things that Jesus has begun to teach. That's how you and I need the Spirit of God, among other reasons, even today as, as we read our Bibles. Uh, you and I don't understand our Bibles surely by our, the, the, brainy, the brains of our own willpower. We, we understand our Bibles in humble dependence upon the Spirit of God who, who helps us to uh, who illuminates our minds and helps us to understand what we are reading and what we are seeing. And yet, and yet I could go further, but yet in verse 18, so he says that I'm going to ask the Father to send the, to send the Spirit. And then in verse 18, he says this. I will not leave you as orphans. He said earlier, I'm I'm leaving. But now he says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Not physically like he's presently been with them. That's why he says in verse 19, Yet a little while the world will not see me no more, but you will see me. In other words, I'm going to come to you in a way that is not 
physically observable. I'm going to come to you in a way that, that the Spirit who now indwells you will give you the eyes to see that I am still with you. And then, and then before we get to the end, the final piece that I want to add under this first point um, in verse 23, and if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we, and we, we, Father and Son, we will come to him and make our home with him. So see, by the time we get through this unit that we've just read, it's not just the Spirit who indwells the children of God at this present moment. It's the Spirit who then works out a way for, by the Spirit for Jesus to indwell us, and by the Spirit not only for Jesus to indwell us, but to, for the Father to also be with us. So see, when I talk about God's indwelling presence, and when this unit talks about God's indwelling presence, he's not just talking about the Spirit of God who indwells us. But as the Spirit of God indwells us, that makes it doable, that makes it possible for the Son and the Father to also indwell us. That's just an incredible reality. Now, it's, he's, he's, in this passage, he's not talking about What's going to happen way down the road? What he's saying is that, is that after his own death, burial, and resurrection and ascension, the Spirit of God will immediately indwell God's people. And when the Spirit of God immediately indwells people, it, it, that, that brings a sense of the nearness and the proximity and the indwelling presence of each member of the Godhead. Now, let me back up for a second. If you were to ask me, Joe, what's the essence of Christianity? I'd say what the essence of Christianity is, is it's an event that happened in history outside of us. It, it, is, is, it, 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 it starts with the arrival of Jesus and the perfect life that he lived. And, and, and then he went to the cross and, and, and the perfect sacrifice he offered of himself at the cross as a substitute, as a swap out for us and for our sins. In other words, Christianity at its essence is an event of history that does not happen in our hearts. And yet as sure as that's the essence of Christianity, the essence of a Christian is someone whom, who is indwelt by the members of the Godhead. A Christian is someone in whom God is dwelling that's, a, that's an incredible reality. One that I think, sadly, we, we, don't, we don't extol the beauty of that often enough. We, 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 we make the essence of being a Christian just way too one-dimensional. A Christian is someone whose sins are forgiven. Well, yeah, but, but to what end? Why, why, is, why do our sins need to be forgiven? Ah, our sins need to be forgiven because... How would a holy God inhabit a sinful soul? Our sins need to be forgiven because that's what makes way for God to come down 
and indwell us. That's why when, when Peter would say in 2 Peter chapter 1 that we are partakers of the divine nature. Oh, no, no, no. We're not divine, but we have God dwelling inside of us. That's why Paul would say in, in Colossians chapter 1 verse 27 that Christ is in us and that's our hope of glory. In other words, he's already in us, but because of that, there's more to come. Oh, and there is more to come. There's even more to come about the indwelling presence of God. And when we, if we were to cheat and read ahead and look at the, the last pages of our Bibles, we would see in Revelation 21, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. What I'm saying is that future reality has already begun. Already begun. Already. Our bodies are the, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is within us. Or what Paul says in Romans 8, verses 9 through 14, he, he talks about the Spirit of God in, in us and the Spirit of Christ in us and the Spirit of adoption in us by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's just his way of saying it in another way, that, that, that we are indwelt by the members of the Godhead. Oh, beautiful reality. I told you it would take three hours to do this. But I've got to move on. We'll do this quicker. Maybe, I don't know, I don't know, who knows. But quicker for me is relative, isn't it? So there's the reality of God's indwelling presence, and then there's the response to God's indwelling presence. And that response is characterized by what he says in verse 15, verse 21, verse 23, and verse 24. Let's read what it says. Verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my, and my Father who will love me and will come to him, will love him and come to him and, and make our home with him. And then verse 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine but the Father's who sent me. So there's the reality of God's indwelling presence. And there's what you and I do with that. There's how you and I live in light of that. In the 17th century, uh, a, a pastor named Henry Skugel wrote this. He wrote a book called The Life of God and the Soul of Man. And he says this, The worth an excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of his love. Do you see why I said earlier that this passage is not explaining to us how we become Christians? If we used it for that, 
we would, we would wind up in a really deep ditch. But this passage is explaining to us how we are to be Christian, what a Christian does. A Christian is someone who, whom, in whom the God's presence indwells, and, the, and, and, and someone in whom the presence of God dwells. The outcome of that is now a new heart or soul that loves God. And the evidence of that love for God, our passage tells us, is typified by our compliance to God's Word, our obedience to God's Word. You see the sharp connection between love and obedience in this passage. They, they are separate concepts and separate notions, and, and yet they're inseparable in terms of love and obedience fit together. Now, you could read this passage wrongly in, in a way that would suggest that it is our love and our obedience that earns and establishes God's love. Or in other words, you could read it in such a way as it, you could make it suggest God loves us because we first loved Him. Of course, that would set so much else in Scripture on its head. And, and yet what this passage is saying is that for those whom God's Spirit, God's presence indwells, that affects our affections, our loves, and our loves is exhibited by our obediences. And our obediences, while they do not earn or establish God's love, they express and they help us to experience God's love. That's why there is language here that... that for those of us who love God and are obedient to His commands, that, that there is a greater sense, a greater experience of God's love in our hearts and in our souls. And yet the knot that we have to untangle shortly, I mean doing it shortly if we can, is what it's not saying is that God didn't give a thought in the world about us, and one day we wooed him over to us by our spectacular, loving obedience to him. And the first thing I want to point out in this passage that, that helps us to understand that is a couple of things. Something that he's said um, uh, in, in verse 17. Um, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then, and then something that Judas, not Iscariot, asked in verse 22. says, uh, uh, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Lord, how come it is that you're going to give the spirit to us so that our eyes are open, so that we see Jesus, so that and in seeing Jesus, we see him rightly and, and therefore we love him. Why, why are you doing that with us and for us and, and, and not with the world? And here's the clincher here. 
Guess where you and I start from? We start from that segment of the world called the world. In other words, we too once were of the world. And so here the tension of the world can't see or understand what the Lord is saying here, but the Lord's people do, and, 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 and they love the Lord for that, and with a love that wants to obey the Lord and, and keep His word. The world doesn't get that because the world is blinded to that and bound in sin. Our, our passage, in a sense, suggests two Cycles, a downward cycle and an upward cycle. A downward cycle is that the world is blind toward the beauty of Christ. And it's blinded in its beauty toward Christ and therefore still bound and captive to sin. And all it does, it being blinded and bound, is it continues to spiral downward in sin and self-destruction. And yet at some point, something happens something happens that busts up that downward cycle so that now God's children are not on a downward cycle. We are on an upward cycle so that God's love comes to us and opens our eyes and throws off the shackles and we now see and our hearts are now released and and with seeing the beauty of Jesus and hearts unleashed to love Jesus, that's what we do. We do it gladly and we obey him out of that. That love and, and that begins an upward spiral so that the more we see of his love, the more we love him and the more we want to obey him and the more we love him and want to obey him, the even still more we experience of his love. He alludes to this in the next chapter. In chapter 15 of John, he would say, Similarly, and yet he expands on it more clearly in, in John 15, 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. There's a, there's a primacy of God's love And not a primacy of our, of our love. Or how he would say it in verse 16 of chapter 15. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Do you understand the beauty of this? This is, you know where God finds us? God finds us while we were yet sinners. He finds us when we weren't loving him too well. He finds us um, when when. When we didn't see him rightly, we didn't see him as worthy, and so therefore we didn't, we didn't express his worth. We didn't see him as beautiful, and so we didn't worship him as beautiful. We didn't see him as true, and so we followed after error. We didn't see him as deserving of our love and our trust and our loyalty. We didn't see him deserving of, of our obedience and our following him. And yet he found us in that condition. And that's, all, that's why John, who is one of the guys who's in the room that night, John says this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, and chapter 4, verse 19. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent Jesus to be the 
propitiation or atonement for our sins, or, or, or even more directly in verse 19 of 1 John 4, we love, we do love, we do love. If we name the name of Jesus, we love Jesus. We love, he says, because he first loved us. We're talking about a miracle here. Um, this week I listened to the, a book on tape on the, the Wright brothers, they, they, two brothers, Orville and Wilbur, and uh, they ran a bicycle shop in Dayton, Ohio, and, uh, and, and they had a curiosity to see if man could fly. And, of course, in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, they proved that he, that he could. But during that era, people were, like, mocking these guys, a couple of knucklehead brothers, that it is impossible to fly. The experts said. We were once among the world. And what broke up the condition and blindness of our downward spiral of bondage to sin is the love of God exhibited in the death of Jesus. And that love of God expressed in the death of Jesus when the Spirit of God opens our eyes to see it. We find it captivatingly beautiful. We don't find it something to be meh or dismissive about. We find it to be all-encompassing. It orders our world because our world is ordered by what we love. Joey Chestnut yesterday, uh, for the 13th straight year in a row, was the champion once again of the world hot dog eating contest. He, he, he consumed 75 hot dogs yesterday. Someone ought to check on me. He's probably dead this morning. But, uh, but and of course, and, and every time I hear such a gross thing, I think of that little sign back in, the high school, in, my, in my elementary school cafeteria. Uh, it said, you are what you eat. <laughs> and that's true as far as it goes. I mean, what you eat does affect your body. I mean, check this out. But, uh, but, but you know, but we are more than body. We are body and soul. And in fact, even more particular, we are souls before God that have a body. I'm not trying to be belittle in our bodies, but, but we are souls. And so I would say, in that sense, it's not simply you are what you eat, but you are what you love. And what we love, we do. And yet, that doesn't even capture the full orb of, I think, what the Scripture is saying here. It does affirm you and I are what we love. But it's also reminding us that you and I are whom we are loved by. For if we are loved by the Lord with His redemptive love, that is transformed. Formational. 
that not only pardons us of our sins, but it gets inside our hearts. And it begins transforming our hearts so that our desires are, are reordered and therefore our lives are redirected. Yes, inconsistently we love the Lord and therefore incompletely we obey the Lord here and now. Because in a sense, we haven't even fully tasted all that we will taste, as alluded to in Revelation, of the indwelling presence of God in our souls. Then we will love God perfectly. Then we will abide by God's love flawlessly. But in the meantime, it's begun. Because God has moved in. How does he move in? When you see that Jesus is the one who has laid down his life. And that in laying down his life, he took your sin, just as he took my sin. He took your sin, and he took it upon himself, and he bore up under the just punishment of that sin. He experienced the curse and the judgment and the penalties of our sins in our place as an act of love. And to receive what Christ has done. You must turn from yourself, and you must turn to Jesus and trust only in him. And then Father, Son, Holy Spirit, move in and begin changing our hearts and lives. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how your word gives us what we need to know to live in all of the joy and fullness of our salvation. And so, Father, we can gather this morning and affirm these things and believe these things, and we can gather this morning and even depart here with grateful hearts. For through your Son, you are now our Father, and we are now indwelt by you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, our prayer is that that reality would be a reality that we are continually conscious of this week so that as we respond and react to the world around us that we would do so not in light of what's going on situationally but that we would respond in light of what you are doing within us for I pray this in Jesus name Amen. Pastor Carl